0: Section 29 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 43 Dionysus. In the preceding chapters we saw that in antiquity the civilized nations of Western Asia and Egypt pictured to themselves the changes of the seasons, and particularly the annual growth and decay of vegetation, as episodes in the life of gods, whose mournful death and happy resurrection they celebrated with dramatic rites of alternate lamentation and rejoicing. But if the celebration was in form dramatic, it was in substance magical, that is to say it was intended on the principles of sympathetic magic to ensure the vernal regeneration of plants and the multiplication of animals which had seemed to be menaced by the inroads of winter in the ancient world however such ideas and such rites were by no means confined to the oriental peoples of babylon and syria of phrygia and egypt they were not a product peculiar to the religious mysticism of the dreamy east but were shared by the races of livelier fancy and more mercurial temperament who inhabited the shores and islands of the Aegean. We need not, with some inquirers in ancient and modern times, suppose that these Western peoples borrowed from the older civilization of the Orient, the conception of the dying and reviving God, together with the solemn ritual, in which that conception was dramatically set forth before the eyes of the worshippers. More probably, the resemblance which may be traced in this respect between the religions of the East and West, is no more than what we commonly, though incorrectly, call a fortuitous coincidence, the effect of similar causes acting alike on the similar constitution of the human mind in different countries and under different skies. The Greek had no need to journey into far countries to learn the vicissitudes of the seasons, to mark the fleeting beauty of the damask rose, the transient glory of the golden corn, the passing splendor of the purple grapes. Year by year in his own beautiful land he beheld, with natural regret, the bright pomp of summer fading into the gloom and stagnation of winter, and year by year he hailed with natural delight the outburst of fresh life in spring. Accustomed to personify the forces of nature, to tinge her cold abstractions with the warm hues of imagination, to clothe her naked realities with the gorgeous drapery of a mythic fancy, he fashioned for himself a train of gods and goddesses, of spirits and elves, out of the shifting panorama of the seasons, and followed the annual fluctuations of their fortunes with alternate emotions of cheerfulness and dejection of gladness and sorrow, which found their natural expression in alternate rites of rejoicing and lamentation, of revelry and mourning. A consideration of some of the Greek divinities who thus died and rose again from the dead may furnish us with a series of companion pictures to set side by side with the sad figures of Adonis, Attis, and Osiris. We begin with Dionysus. The god Dionysus, or Bacchus, is best known to us as a personification of the vine, and of the exhilaration produced by the juice of the grape. His ecstatic worship, characterized by wild dances, thrilling music, and tipsy excess, appears to have originated among the rude tribes of Thrace, who were notoriously addicted to drunkenness. Its mystic doctrines and extravagant rites were essentially foreign to the clear intelligence and sober temperament of the Greek race. Yet appealing as it did to that love of mystery and that proneness to revert to savagery, which seemed to be an aid in most men, the religion spread like wildfire through Greece, until the god whom Homer hardly deigned to notice had become the most popular figure of the pantheon. The resemblance which his story and his ceremonies present to those of Osiris have led some inquirers, both in ancient and modern times, to hold that Dionysus was merely a disguised Osiris, imported directly from Egypt into Greece but the great preponderance of evidence points to his Thracian origin, and the similarity of the two worships is sufficiently explained by the similarity of the ideas and customs on which they were founded. While the vine, with its clusters, was the most characteristic manifestation of Dionysus, he was also a god of trees in general. Thus we are told that almost all the Greeks sacrificed to Dionysus of the tree, and Boeotia, one of his titles was Dionysus in the tree. His image was often merely an upright post, without arms but draped in a mantle, with a bearded mask to represent the head, and with leafy boughs projecting from the head or body to show the nature of the deity. On a vase his rude effigy is depicted appearing out of a low tree or bush. At Magnesia, on the meander, an image of Dionysus is said to have been found in a plane tree, which had been broken by the wind. He was the patron of cultivated trees. Pears were offered to him that he would make the trees grow. And he was especially honoured by the husbandmen, chiefly fruit-growers, who set up an image of him in the shape of a natural tree stump, in their orchards. He was said to have discovered all tree-fruits, amongst which apples and figs are particularly mentioned. And he was referred to as well-fruited, he of the green fruit, and making the fruit to grow. One of his titles was teeming, or bursting, as of sap or blossoms. And there was a flowery Dionysus in Attica, and at Patrae in Achaia. The Athenians sacrificed to him for the prosperity of the fruits of the land. Amongst the trees particularly sacred to him, in addition to the vine, was the pine tree. The Delphic oracle commanded the Corinthians to worship a particular pine tree equally with the god, so they made two images of Dionysus out of it, with red faces and gilt bodies. In art, a wand tipped with a pine cone is commonly carried by the god or his worshippers. Again, the ivy and the fig tree were especially associated with him in the attic township of Acarnae, there was a Dionysus ivy, and at Lacedaemon there was a fig Dionysus, and in Naxos, where figs were called Melica, there was a Dionysus Melikios, the face of whose image was made of fig wood. Further, there are indications, few but significant, that Dionysus was conceived as a deity of agriculture and the corn. He is spoken of as himself doing the work of a husbandman. He is reported to have been the first to yoke oxen to the plough. Which, before had been dragged by hand alone, and some people found in this tradition the clue to the bovine shape, in which, as we shall see, the god was often supposed to present himself to his worshippers, thus guiding the ploughshare and scattering the seed as he went. Dionysus is said to have eased the labour of the husbandman. further, we are told that in the land of the Bisaltai, a Thracian tribe. There was a great and fair sanctuary of Dionysus, where at his festival a bright light shone forth at night as a token of an abundant harvest, vouched safe by the deity. But if the crops were to fail that year, the mystic light was not seen, darkness brooded over the sanctuary as at other times. Moreover, among the emblems of Dionysus was the winnowing fan, that is the large, open, shovel-shaped basket which down to modern times has been used by farmers to separate the grain from the chaff by tossing the corn in the air this simple agricultural instrument figured in the mystic rites of Dionysus. Indeed, the god is traditionally said to have been placed at birth in a winnowing fan, as in a cradle. In art he is represented as an infant so cradled. And from these traditions and representations he derived the epithet of Lichnites, that is, he of the winnowing fan. Like other gods of vegetation, Dionysus was believed to have died a violent death, but to have been brought to life again, and his sufferings, death, and resurrection, were enacted in his sacred rites. His tragic story is thus told by the poet Nonis. Zeus, in the form of a serpent, visited Persephone, and she bore him Zagrus, that is, Dionysus, a horned infant. Scarcely was he born when the babe mounted the throne of his father Zeus, and mimicked the great god by brandishing the lightning in his tiny hand. But he did not occupy the throne long, for the treacherous titans, their faces whited with chalk, attacked him with knives while he was looking at himself in a mirror. For a time he evaded their assaults by turning himself into various shapes, assuming the likeness successively of Zeus and Cronus, of a young man, of a lion, a horse, and a serpent. Finally, in the form of a bull, he was cut to pieces by the murderous knives of his enemies. His Cretan myth, as related by Firmicus Maternus, ran thus. He was said to have been the bastard son of Jupiter, a Cretan king. Going abroad, Jupiter transferred the throne and scepter to the youthful Dionysus, but knowing that his wife Juno cherished a jealous dislike of the child, he entrusted Dionysus to the care of guards upon whose fidelity he believed he could rely. Juno, however, bribed the guards, and amusing the child with rattles and a cunningly wrought looking-glass, lured him into an ambush, where her satellites, the Titans, rushed upon him, cut him limb from limb, boiled his body with various herbs, and ate it but his sister Minerva, who had shared in the deed, kept his heart and gave it to Jupiter on his return, revealing to him the whole history of the crime. In his rage Jupiter put the Titans to death by torture, and to soothe his grief for the loss of his son, made an image in which he enclosed the child's heart, and then built a temple in his honor. In this version a euhemeristic turn has been given to the myth by representing Jupiter and Juno, Zeus and Hera, as a king and queen of Crete the guards referred to are the mythical curates who danced a war-dance around the infant Dionysus, as they are said to have done round the infant Zeus. Very noteworthy is the legend, recorded both by Nonnus and Firmicus, that in his infancy Dionysus occupied for a short time the throne of his father Zeus. So Proclus tells us that Dionysus was the last king of the gods appointed by Zeus, for his father set him on the kingly throne, and placed in his hand the scepter, and made him king of all the gods of the world. Such traditions point to a custom of temporarily investing the king's son with the royal dignity as a preliminary to sacrificing him instead of his father. Pomegranates were supposed to have sprung from the blood of Dionysus, as anemones from the blood of Adonis, and violets from the blood of Attis. Hence women refrained from eating seeds of pomegranates at the festival of the Thesmophoria. According to some, the severed limbs of Dionysus were pieced together, at the command of Zeus, by Apollo, who buried them on Parnassus. The grave of Dionysus was shown in the Delphic Temple beside a golden statue of Apollo. However, according to another account, the grave of Dionysus was at Thebes, where he is said to have been torn in pieces. Thus far the resurrection of the slain god is not mentioned, but in other versions of the myth it is variously related. According to one version, which represented Dionysus as a son of Zeus and Demeter, his mother pieced together his mangled limbs and made him young again, In others it is simply said that shortly after his burial he rose from the dead and ascended up to heaven, or that Zeus raised him up as he lay mortally wounded, or that Zeus swallowed the heart of Dionysus and then begat him afresh by Semele, who in the common legend figures as mother of Dionysus, or again the heart was pounded up and given in a potion to Semele, who thereby conceived him. Turning from the myth to the ritual, we find that the Cretans celebrated a biennial festival at which the passion of Dionysus was represented in every detail. All that he had done or suffered in his last moments was enacted before the eyes of his worshippers, who tore a live bull to pieces with their teeth, and roamed the woods with frantic shouts. In front of them was carried a casket supposed to contain the sacred heart of Dionysus, and to the wild music of flutes and cymbals they mimicked the rattles by which the infant god had been lured to his doom. Where the resurrection formed part of the myth, it also was acted at the rites, and it even appears that a general doctrine of resurrection— Or at least of immortality, was inculcated on the worshippers. For Plutarch, writing to console his wife on the death of their infant daughter, comforts her with the thought of immortality of the soul as taught by tradition and revealed in the mysteries of Dionysus. A different form of the myth of the death and resurrection of Dionysus is that he descended into Hades to bring up his mother Semele from the dead. The local Argive tradition was that he went down through the Alcyonian lake, and his return from the lower world, in other words, his resurrection, was annually celebrated on the spot by the Argives, who summoned him from the water by trumpet blasts, while they threw a lamb into the lake as an offering to the warder of the dead. Whether this was a spring festival does not appear, but the Lydians certainly celebrated the advent of Dionysus in spring. The god was supposed to bring the season with him. Deities of vegetation, who are believed to pass a certain portion of each year underground, naturally come to be regarded as gods of the lower world or of the dead, Both Dionysus and Osiris were so conceived. A feature in the mythical character of Dionysus, which at first sight appears inconsistent with his nature as a deity of vegetation, is that he was often conceived and represented in animal shape, especially in the form, or at least with the horns, of a bull. Thus he is spoken of as cow-born, bull, bull bull-shaped, bull-faced, bull-browed, bull-horned, horn-bearing, two-horned, horned, He was believed to appear, at least occasionally, as a bull. His images were often, as at Sisychus, made in bull shape or with bull horns, and he was painted with horns. Types of the horned Dionysus are found amongst the surviving monuments of antiquity. On one statuette he appears clad in a bull's hide, the head, horns, and hoofs hanging down behind. Again he is represented as a child with clusters of grapes round his brow and a calf's head with sprouting horns attached to the back of his head, On a red-figured vase, the god is portrayed as a calf-headed child seated on a woman's lap. The people of Sinatha held a festival of Dionysus in winter, when men, who had greased their bodies with oil for the occasion, used to pick out a bull from the herd and carry it to the sanctuary of the god. Dionysus was supposed to inspire their choice of the particular bull, which probably represented the deity himself, for at his festivals he was believed to appear in bull form. The women of Elis hailed him as a bull, and prayed him to come with his bull's foot. They sang, Come hither, Dionysus, to thy holy temple by the sea. Come with the graces to thy temple, rushing with thy bull's foot, O goodly bull, O goodly bull. The Bacchanals of Thrace wore horns in imitation of their god. According to the myth, it was in the shape of a bull that he was torn to pieces by the titans. And the Cretans, when they acted the sufferings and death of Dionysus, tore a live bull to pieces with their teeth. Indeed, the rending and devouring of live bulls and calves appear to have been a regular feature of the Dionysiac rites. When we consider the practice of portraying the god as a bull, or with some of the features of the animal, the belief that he appeared in bull form to his worshippers at the sacred rites, and the legend that in bull form he had been torn to pieces, we cannot doubt that in rending and devouring a live bull at his festival, the worshippers of Dionysus believed themselves to be killing the god, eating his flesh, and drinking his blood. Another animal whose form Dionysus assumed was the goat. One of his names was Kid. At Athens and at Hermion he was worshipped under the title of the one of the black goat-skin, and a legend ran that on a certain occasion he had appeared clad in the skin from which he took the title. In the wine-growing district of Phleas, where in autumn the plain is still thickly mantled with the red and golden foliage of the fading vines, there stood of old a bronze image of a goat which the husbandmen plastered with gold leaf as a means of protecting their vines against blight. The image probably represented the vine-god himself. To save him from the wrath of Hera, his father Zeus changed the youthful Dionysus into a kid, and when the gods fled to Egypt to escape the fury of Typhon, Dionysus was turned into a goat. Hence, when his worshippers rent in pieces a live goat and devoured it raw, they must have believed they were eating the body and blood of the god. The custom of tearing in pieces the bodies of animals and of men and then devouring them raw has been practised as a religious rite by savages in modern times. We need not, therefore, dismiss as a fable the testimony of antiquity to the observance of similar rites among the frenzied worshippers of Bacchus. The custom of killing a god in animal form, which we shall examine more in detail further on, belongs to a very early stage of human culture, and is apt in later times to be misunderstood. The advance of thought tends to strip the old animal and plant gods of their bestial and vegetable husk, and to leave their human attributes, which are always the kernel of the conception, as the final and sole residuum. In other words, animal and plant gods tend to become purely anthropomorphic. When they have become wholly or nearly so, the animals and plants which were at first the deities themselves, still retain a vague and ill-understood connection with the anthropomorphic gods who have developed out of them the origin of the relationship between the deity and the animal or plant having been forgotten, various stories are invented to explain it. These explanations may follow one of two lines according as they are based on the habitual, or on the exceptional, treatment of the sacred animal or plant. The sacred animal was habitually spared, and only exceptionally slain, and accordingly the myth might be devised to explain either why it was spared or why it was killed. Devised for the former purpose the myth would tell of some service rendered to the deity by the animal. Devised for the latter purpose, the myth would tell of some injury inflicted by the animal on the god. The reason given for sacrificing goats to Dionysus exemplifies a myth of the latter sort. They were sacrificed to him, it was said, because they injured the vine. Now the goat, as we have seen, was originally an embodiment of the god himself. But when the god had divested himself of his animal character, and had become essentially anthropomorphic, the killing of the goat in his worship came to be regarded no longer as a slaying of the deity himself, but as a sacrifice offered to him. And since some reason had to be assigned why the goat in particular should be sacrificed, it was alleged that this was a punishment inflicted on the goat for injuring the vine, the object of the god's especial care. Thus we have the strange spectacle of a god sacrificed to himself on the ground that he is his own enemy and as the deity is supposed to partake of the victim offered to him it follows that when the victim is the god's old self the god eats of his own flesh hence the goat god dionysus is represented as eating raw goat's blood and the bull god dionysus is called eater of bulls on the analogy of these instances we may conjecture that wherever a deity is described as the eater of a particular animal the animal in question was originally nothing but the deity himself Later on, we shall find that some savages propitiate dead bears and whales by offering them portions of their own bodies. All this, however, does not explain why a deity of vegetation should appear in animal form, but the consideration of that point had better be deferred till we have discussed the character and attributes of Demeter. Meantime, it remains to mention that in some places, instead of an animal, a human being was torn in pieces at the rites of Dionysus. This was the practice in Chios and Tenedos and at Potniae in Boeotia the tradition ran that it had been formerly the custom to sacrifice to the goat-smiting Dionysus a child, for whom a goat was afterwards substituted. At Orchomenus, as we have seen, the human victim was taken from the women of an old royal family. As the slain bull or goat represented the slain god, so we may suppose the human victim also represented him. The legends of the deaths of Pentheus and Lycurgus, Two kings who are said to have been torn to pieces, one by the bacchanals, the other by horses, for their opposition to the rites of Dionysus, may be, as I have already suggested, distorted reminiscences of a custom of sacrificing divine kings in the character of Dionysus, and of dispersing the fragments of their broken bodies over the fields, for the purpose of fertilizing them. It is probably no mere coincidence that Dionysus himself is said to have been torn in pieces at Thebes the very place where, according to legend, the same fate befell King Pentheus at the hands of the frenzied votaries of the wine god However, a tradition of human sacrifice may sometimes have been a mere misinterpretation of a sacrificial ritual in which an animal victim was treated as a human being. For example, at Tenedos, the newborn calf sacrificed to Dionysus was shod in buskins, and the mother cow was tended like a woman in childbed. At Rome, a she-goat was sacrificed to Vedejovis as if it were a human victim. Yet, on the other hand, it is equally possible, and perhaps more probable, that these curious rites were themselves mitigations of an older and ruder custom of sacrificing human beings, and that the latter pretense of treating the sacrificial victims as if they were human beings was merely part of a pious and merciful fraud, which palmed off on the deity less precious victims than living men and women." This interpretation is supported by many undoubted cases in which animals have been substituted for human victims. Chapter 44 Demeter and Persephone Dionysus was not the only Greek deity whose tragic story and ritual appear to reflect the decay and revival of vegetation. In another form, and with a different application, the old tale reappears in the myth of Demeter and Persephone. Substantially, their myth is identical with the Syrian one of Aphrodite, Astarte, and adonis the phrygian one of sibele and attis and the egyptian one of isis and osiris in the greek fable as in its asiatic and egyptian counterparts a goddess mourns the loss of a loved one who personifies the vegetation more especially the corn which dies in winter to revive in spring only whereas the oriental imagination figured the loved and lost one as a dead lover or a dead husband lamented by his leman or his wife greek fancy embodied the same idea in the tenderer and purer form of a dead daughter bewailed by her sorrowing mother the oldest literary document which narrates the myth of demeter and persephone is the beautiful homeric hymn to demeter which critics assign to the seventh century before our era the object of the poem is to explain the origin of the eleusinian mysteries and the complete silence of the poet as to athens and the athenians who in after-ages took conspicuous part in the festival renders it probable that the hymn was composed in the far-off time when Eleusis was still a petty independent state, and before the stately procession of the mysteries had begun to defile in bright September days over the low chain of barren rocky hills which divides the flat Eleusinian cornland from the more spacious olive-clad expanse of the Athenian plain. Be that as it may, the hymn reveals to us the conception which the writer entertained of the character and functions of the two goddesses. Their natural shapes stand out sharply enough under the thin veil of poetical imagery. The youthful Persephone, so runs the tale, was gathering roses and lilies, crocuses and violets, hyacinths and narcissuses, in a lush meadow, when the earth gaped, and Pluto, lord of the dead, issuing from the abyss, carried her off on his golden car to be his bride and queen in the gloomy subterranean world. Her sorrowing mother Demeter— with her yellow tresses veiled in a dark morning mantle, sought her over land and sea, and learning from the sun her daughter's fate, she withdrew in high dudgeon from the gods, and took up her abode at Eleusis, where she presented herself to the king's daughters in the guise of an old woman, sitting sadly under the shadow of an olive tree beside the maiden's well, to which damsels had come to draw water in bronze pitchers for their father's house. In her wrath at her bereavement the goddess suffered not the seed to grow in the earth, but kept it hidden under the ground, and she vowed that never would she set foot on Olympus, and never would she let the corn sprout, till her lost daughter should be restored to her. Vainly the oxen dragged the ploughs to and fro in the fields, vainly the sower dropped the barley-seed in the brown furrows. Nothing came up from the parched and crumbling soil— Even the Rarian plain near Eleusius, which was wont to wave with yellow harvests, lay bare and fallow. Mankind would have perished of hunger, and the gods would have been robbed of the sacrifices which were their due, if Zeus, in alarm, had not commanded Pluto to disgorge his prey, to restore his bride Persephone to her mother Demeter. The grim lord of the dead smiled and obeyed, but before he sent back his queen to the upper air on a golden car, he gave her the seed of a pomegranate to eat which ensured that she would return to him. But Zeus stipulated that henceforth Persephone should spend two-thirds of every year with her mother, and the gods, in the upper world, and one-third of the year with her husband in the nether world, from which she was to return year by year when the earth was gay with spring flowers. Gladly the daughter then returned to the sunshine. Gladly her mother received her and fell upon her neck, and in her joy at recovering the lost one, Demeter made the corn to sprout from the clods of the ploughed fields, and all the broad earth to be heavy with leaves and blossoms. And straightway she went and showed this happy sight to the princes of Eleusius, to Triptolemus, Eumolpus, Diocles, and to the king Celius himself, and moreover she revealed to them her sacred rites and mysteries. Blessed, says the poet, is the mortal man who has seen these things, but he who has had no share of them in life will never be happy in death when he has descended into the darkness of the grave. So the two goddesses departed to dwell in bliss with the gods on Olympus, and the bard ends the hymn with a pious prayer to Demeter and Persephone, that they would be pleased to grant him a livelihood in return for his song. It has been generally recognized, and indeed it seems scarcely open to doubt, that the main theme which the poet set before himself in composing this hymn was to describe the traditional foundation of the Eleusian mysteries by the goddess Demeter. The whole poem leads up to the transformation scene in which the bare, leafless expanse of the Eleusinian Plain is suddenly turned at the will of the goddess into a vast sheet of ruddy corn. The beneficent deity takes the princes of Eleusis, shows them what she has done, teaches them her mystic rites, and vanishes with her daughter to heaven. The revelation of the mysteries is the triumphal close of the piece. This conclusion is confirmed by a more minute examination of the poem which proves that the poet has given not merely a general account of the foundation of the mysteries, but also in more or less veiled language, mythical explanations of the origin of particular rites which we have good reason to believe formed essential features of the festival. Amongst these rites, as to which the poet thus drops significant hints, are the preliminary fast of the candidates for initiation, the torchlight procession, the all-night vigil, the sitting of the candidates, veiled and in silence, on stools covered with sheepskins, the use of scurrilous language, the breaking of ribald jests, and the solemn communion with the divinity by participation in a draught of barley-water from a holy chalice. But there is yet another and a deeper secret of the mysteries, which the author of the poem appears to have divulged under the cover of his narrative. He tells us how, as soon as she had transformed the barren brown expanse of the Eleusinian plain into a field of golden grain, she gladdened the eyes of Triptolemus and the other Eleusinian princes by showing them the growing or standing corn. When we compare this part of the story with the statement of a Christian writer in the second century, Hippolytus, that the very heart of the mysteries consisted in showing to the initiated a reaped ear of corn, we can hardly doubt that the poet of the hymn was well acquainted with this solemn rite, and that he deliberately intended to explain its origin in precisely the same way as he explained other rites of the mysteries, namely by representing Demeter as having set the example of performing the ceremony in her own person. Thus myth and ritual mutually explain and confirm each other. The poet of the seventh century before our era gives us the myth. He could not without sacrilege have revealed the ritual. The Christian father reveals the ritual, and his revelation accords perfectly with the veiled hint of the old poet. On the whole, then, we may, with modern scholars, confidently accept the statement of the learned Christian father Clement of Alexandria, that the myth of Demeter and Persephone was acted as a sacred drama in the mysteries of Eleusis. But if the myth was acted as a part, perhaps as the principal part, of the most famous and solemn religious rites of ancient Greece, we have still to inquire, what was, after all, stripped of later accretions, the original kernel of the myth? which appears to later ages surrounded and transfigured by an aureole of awe and mystery, lit up by some of the most brilliant rays of Grecian literature and art. If we follow the indications given by our oldest literary authority on the subject, the author of the Homeric hymn to Demeter, the riddle is not hard to read. The figures of the two goddesses, the mother and the daughter, resolve themselves into personifications of the corn. At least this appears to be fairly certain for the daughter Persephone the goddess who spends three, or, according to another version of the myth, six months of every year with the dead underground, and the remainder of the year with the living above ground, in whose absence the barley seed is hidden in the earth, and the fields lie bare and fallow, on whose return in spring to the upper world the corn shoots up from the clods and the earth is heavy with leaves and blossoms. This goddess can surely be nothing else than a mythical embodiment of the vegetation, and particularly of the corn, which is buried under the soil for some months of every winter, and comes to life again as from the grave, in the sprouting corn-stalks and the opening flowers and foliage of spring. No other reasonable and probable explanation of Persephone seems possible. And if the daughter goddess was a personification of the young corn of the present year, may not the mother goddess be a personification of the old corn of last year, which has given birth to the new crops? The only alternative to this view of Demeter would seem to be to suppose that she is a personification of the earth, from whose broad bosom the corn and all other plants spring up, and of which accordingly they may appropriately enough be regarded as the daughters. This view of the original nature of Demeter has indeed been taken by some writers, both ancient and modern, and it is one which can be reasonably maintained. But it appears to have been rejected by the author of the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, for he not only distinguishes Demeter from the personified earth, but places the two in the sharpest opposition to each other. He tells us that it was earth who, in accordance with the will of Zeus and to please Pluto, lured Persephone to her doom by causing the narcissuses to grow, which tempted the young goddess to stray far beyond the reach of help in the lush meadow. Thus Demeter of the hymn, far from being identical with the earth goddess, Must have regarded that divinity as her worst enemy, since it was to her insidious wiles that she owed the loss of her daughter. But if the Demeter of the hymn cannot have been a personification of the earth, the only alternative, apparently, is to conclude that she was a personification of the corn. The conclusion is confirmed by the monuments, for in ancient art Demeter and Persephone are alike characterized as goddesses of the corn, by the crowns of corn which they wear on their heads, and by the stalks of corn which they hold in their hands. Again it was Demeter who first revealed to the Athenians the secret of the corn, and diffused the beneficent discovery far and wide, through the agency of Triptolemus, whom she sent forth as an itinerant missionary to communicate the boon to all mankind. On monuments of art, especially in vase paintings, he is constantly represented along with Demeter in this capacity, holding cornstalks in his hand and sitting in his car, which is sometimes winged and sometimes drawn by dragons and from which he is said to have sowed the seed down on the whole world as he sped through the air. In gratitude for the priceless boon, many Greek cities long continued to send the first fruits of their barley and wheat harvests as thanks-offerings to the two goddesses, Demeter and Persephone, at Eleusis, where subterranean granaries were built, to store the overflowing contributions. Theocritus tells how in the island of Kos, in the sweet-scented summertime, The farmer brought the first fruits of the harvest to Demeter, who had filled his threshing floor with barley, and whose rustic image held sheaves and poppies in her hands. Many of the epithets bestowed by the ancients on Demeter mark her intimate association with the corn in the clearest manner. How deeply implanted in the mind of the ancient Greeks was this faith in Demeter as goddess of the corn. May be judged by the circumstance that the faith actually persisted among their Christian descendants at her old sanctuary of Eleusis down to the beginning of the nineteenth century For when the English traveller Dodwell revisited Eleusis, the inhabitants lamented to him the loss of a colossal image of Demeter, which was carried off by Clark in eighteen o two and presented to the University of Cambridge, where it still remains in my first journey to Greece, says Dodwell, this protecting deity was in its full glory situated in the center of a threshing-floor, amongst the ruins of her temple. The villagers were impressed with the persuasion that their rich harvests were the effect of her bounty, and since her removal, their abundance, as they assured me, has disappeared. Thus we see the corn-goddess Demeter standing on the threshing-floor of Eleusis, and dispensing corn to her worshippers in the nineteenth century of the Christian era, precisely as her image stood and dispensed corn to her worshippers on the threshing-floor of Kos in the days of Theocritus and just as the people of Eleusis in the nineteenth century attributed the diminution of their harvests to the loss of the image of Demeter, so in antiquity the Sicilians, a corn-growing people devoted to the worship of the two corn-goddesses, lamented that the crops of many towns had perished because the unscrupulous Roman governor Verus had impiously carried off the image of Demeter from her famous temple at Henna could we ask for a clearer proof that demeter was indeed the goddess of the corn than this belief held by the greeks down to modern times that the corn crops depended on her presence and bounty and perished when her image was removed on the whole then if ignoring theories we adhere to the evidence of the ancients themselves in regard to the rites of eleusis we shall probably incline to agree with the most learned of ancient antiquaries the roman varro who to quote augustine's report of his opinion interpreted the whole of eleusinian mysteries as relating to the corn which Ceres, demeter had discovered and to proserpine persephone whom pluto had carried off from her and proserpine herself he said signifies the fecundity of the seeds the failure of which at a certain time had caused the earth to mourn for barrenness and therefore had given rise to the opinion that the daughter of Ceres, that is fecundity itself had been ravished by Pluto and detained in the netherworld, and when the dearth had been publicly mourned and fecundity had returned once more, there was gladness at the return of Proserpine, and solemn rites were instituted accordingly. After that, he says, continues Augustine, reporting Vero, that many things were taught in her mysteries which had no reference but to the discovery of corn. Thus far I have for the most part assumed an identity of nature between Demeter and Persephone." the divine mother and daughter, personifying the corn in its double aspect of the seed-corn of last year, and the ripe ears of this. And this view of the substantial unity of mother and daughter is borne out by their portraits in Greek art, which are often so alike as to be indistinguishable. Such a close resemblance between the artistic types of Demeter and Persephone militates decidedly against the view that the two goddesses are mythical embodiments of two things so different and so easily distinguishable from each other as the earth and the vegetation which springs from it. Had Greek artists accepted that view of Demeter and Persephone, they could surely have devised types of them which would have brought out the deep distinction between the goddesses. And if Demeter did not personify the earth— can there be any reasonable doubt that, like her daughter, she personified the corn which was so commonly called by her name from the time of Homer downwards? The essential identity of mother and daughter is suggested not only by the close resemblance of their artistic types, but also by the official title of the two goddesses, which was regularly applied to them in the great sanctuary at Eleusis, without any specification of their individual attributes and titles as if their separate individualities had almost merged into a single divine substance. Surveying the evidence as a whole, we are fairly entitled to conclude that in the mind of the ordinary Greek, the two goddesses were essentially personifications of the corn, and that in this germ the whole efflorescence of their religion finds implicitly its explanation. But to maintain this is not to deny that in the long course of religious evolution, high moral and spiritual conceptions were grafted on this simple original stock, and blossomed out into fairer flowers than the bloom of the barley and the wheat. Above all, the thought of the seed buried in the earth, in order to spring up to new and higher life, readily suggested a comparison with human destiny, and strengthened the hope that for man, too, the grave may be but the beginning of a better and happier existence in some brighter world unknown. This simple and natural reflection seems perfectly sufficient to explain the association of the corn-goddess Eleusis with the mystery of death, and the hope of a blissful immortality, for that the ancients regarded initiation in the Eleusinian mysteries as a key to unlock the gates of paradise appears to be proved by the allusions which well-informed writers among them drop to the happiness in store for the initiated hereafter no doubt it is easy for us to discern the flimsiness of the logical foundation on which such high hopes were built but drowning men clutch at straws and we need not wonder that the greeks like ourselves with death before them and a great love of life in their hearts should not have stopped to weigh with too nice a hand the arguments that told for and against the prospect of human immortality The reasoning that satisfied St. Paul, and has brought comfort to untold thousands of sorrowing Christians, standing by the deathbed or the open grave of their loved ones, was good enough to pass muster with ancient pagans, when they too bowed their heads under the burden of grief, and with the taper of life burning low in the socket, looked forward into the darkness of the unknown. Therefore we do no indignity to the myth of Demeter and Persephone. One of the few myths in which the sunshine and clarity of the Greek genius are crossed by the shadow and mystery of death, when we trace its origin to some of the most familiar yet eternally affecting aspects of nature, to the melancholy gloom and decay of autumn, and to the freshness, the brightness, and the verdure of spring. End of section twenty nine.